At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. It's Friday, September 23rd, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. On October 9th, 2015, Azine Gorashi published a story in BuzzFeed that shook the entire science community. She detailed the story of a university-led sexual harassment investigation of famed exoplanet astronomer Jeff Marcy. Azine spoke to three of the four complainants involved in the investigation, all relating harrowing tales of inappropriate behavior. Marcy publicly apologized for his actions, and he posted a response on his website in which he denies some of the allegations in the Berkeley investigation. He ultimately retired from Berkeley as a result of the controversy. But this article served as a match to a tremendous amount of fuel. In the firestorm that followed, we've seen nearly a dozen academic researchers publicly named in various sexual harassment investigations. Many have denied the allegations. Some have been dismissed, but there is no doubt that 2016 has been a year of deep introspection on the topic of sexual harassment in science. Naturally, this is a really difficult subject to cover, both in terms of just establishing facts, but also the guidelines and sanctions related to this issue vary wildly from institution to institution. But undeniably, we're left with many questions. Is this an epidemic that we're barely scratching the surface of? Are we creating environments that promote this behavior? How do we maintain faculty protections that were really established to promote academic freedom while ensuring these harassment cases are adjudicated quickly and fairly? And frankly, can we even fix this? This is not the first time we've covered this topic on the show. About it, a year ago, or was it two? It's been two years now. I can't believe years. that. When you interviewed a set of researchers, you want to bring our listeners up to speed on that episode. That's right. In episode 48, I interviewed Kate Clancy, Robin Nelson, Julian Rutherford, and Katie Hind, who had published a paper documenting the prevalence of sexual harassment in the field. And that was a really eye-opening hour for me because... It was the first time I recall hearing numbers associated to stories that we all knew were happening in science. And it really detailed this really powerful personal story to go along with some data. And it highlighted the problem of having to do field work, uh, which is a little bit like sending people off to camp, right? And people behave differently in camp. They are often less inhibited and so on. And so it's, it was sort of more of a ripe breeding ground for this kind of poor behavior. But at the same time, it's a necessary thing for students to have to go through to get their degrees. So it was, kind, it's, it was a, a particularly nefarious situation. For this episode, we decided to go directly to a source and someone with power to make changes. So this week, we're talking with Sarah Ballard. She's one of the complainants in the Title IX investigation into Jeff Marcy. She's currently an exoplanet researcher at MIT. And we also talk with 
Representative Jackie Speer, who is introducing legislation this month that would ensure universities have to report anyone who has violated Title IX uh, to the NIH and NSF before they make any decisions on federal grants. Yeah, I really like this show because this is a an episode in which we can put some money where our mouths are, where we talk about policy change potentially and how science can inform it. And of course, this is the problem in science, but it's also an opportunity for us to investigate ways in which policy can change people's futures. And while we do not get into the graphic details of the harassment, some listeners may find the interview disturbing. In preparing for the show, we reviewed the UC Berkeley report on Marcy. It largely corroborates Ballard's story. We also reached out to Marcy and spoke with his attorney, Elizabeth Grossman. She emphasized that Marcy has publicly apologized, and she said that he has taken responsibility for his actions. Still, she argued that Marcy has been treated unfairly in the press and that his behavior wasn't serious enough to warrant being shunned by the academic community. We'll provide some of Grossman's comments during the show. So with that, let's take a short break, and I'll be back with my interview with Sarah Ballard. Sarah Ballard, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. You've become a very visible scientist in the context of the story of of sexual harassment in science. And there's been a Wired article on you. I became aware of your work after the Wired article and and seeing you at a a session with uh, Congresswoman Jackie Speer about stopping sexual harassment. Uh, Before we dive into any of the details, how has that experience been sort of being out, lack of a better term, around this topic? I thought very hard about whether indeed to be out. And it's been largely as I imagined it would be. So when I think about how it's been, I think I steeled myself up appropriately for what it's been like. So I feel a combination of things. One of them is um, a kind of It's hard to know exactly how to describe it. I feel kind of like I've been in a kiln. Uh, So there was a piece of my scientific career where I would say I was very malleable. And I wasn't yet sure what a scientific identity could look like, and especially like how I could create one, which was both uh, reflective of scientific excellence, but also... um, hinted at something more at what an inclusive science culture could look like because a scientist could be brave uh, in more than just doing their science. And I would say that this experience really put me in that kiln. I'm now kind of hardened, I would say, into the identity of a Sarah Ballard I really want to be. So let's provide some context and a a few details for our listeners. Um, Tracking back to your time as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So you were basically interested in astronomy straight away when you came to college? I wasn't. I thought I was going (laughs) to. That's part of my um, harassment story, to tell you the truth, in a way that's kind of sad. Um, I started out in college thinking I was going to be a peace and conflict studies major, a gender studies major. Um, And in fact, I had taken some classes to that that effect. I thought maybe I'd be a social worker. Um, And I took astronomy because of what I thought at the time was a useless physical science breadth requirement. And um, that you can tell that piece of me is still there, albeit hidden a lot of the time. The part of me that's still like, it is worthwhile to devote oneself to social justice and so on. That's worthwhile too, um, even if I felt the call of astronomy at 18. So how did this story develop for you? Because it's sort of an interesting tale. It started at a a, a stop sexual <laughs> yes, assault on campus. that's what I mean, yeah. That's what I mean. Um, that's been something which I think has been one of the most bitterly that one of the um uh most confusing i think and bitter tasting aspects to the revelations of um different harassers not only at berkeley but across the country is that harassers are often associated with very vocal advocacy um for individuals who are underrepresented and that was true in my own case where part of how this individual made uh, an attempt 
to befriend me or to get to know me better uh, outside of a school context was by coming to a rally for Take Back the Night. And that was a awareness and prevention of sexual violence rally. And he was present at that. And that is um, the um, uh, conflicting uh, nature of those two facts is something I still I still can't make sense of it. What was your relationship at that time in the sense that you're a, a young student? Yeah, yeah. I was in his class at that time. You were in his class. Yeah. And did you have any context of like who he was as an astronomer or anything like that? Or is that like, this is too early in your astronomy career to even have any context or idea? No, no, you have an idea. Because you know, um, you know, based on who's in the news, of course. And you know, based on as much as any young scientist is aware of the landscape of the field, you kind of know who has an overlarge presence of being someone who's particularly important in their field or particularly exciting. You do have a sense for that, even if you're largely ignorant about who in the field is doing what exactly. You still have a sense. And it's harder to get more famous than Marcy, uh, to tell you the truth, um, in exoplanets, but also in astronomy generally. It would be hard um, for an undergrad to not be aware of that, at least in part. And I remember... um, at one one time when we were meeting uh, the two of us on campus and he was telling me about a planet that he'd found and it was going to be in the news soon and it was one of the smallest ones ever detected. And so, of course, that too, I'm, I'm very aware of how exciting and cutting edge it was. We're not going to spend the time rehashing all the details in the investigation. It's pretty well documented at this point. Matter of public record, for sure. But I want to ask you, uh, after the time, after the unwanted... Uh, activities occurred. How did you handle that in the moment? Oh my gosh. Um, I can tell you how I handled it. So my story is one uh, that is mercifully short. And the reason for that, it seemed miraculous at the time that what was clearly this escalating pattern suddenly ceased. Why should that be so? And I was, um, like I said, at the event with Congresswoman Spear, I was doing this um, calculating with a with a best friend of mine who is also in the department um, about what she should do if I asked him to stop behaving the way he was toward me, if that meant he would not write me a letter of recommendation for graduate school, then whether she should still ask for it. You know, like there was this, because we were thinking that it could be possible that it would go badly. So that's something I was thinking at the time. How is this going to go? And um, I remember in the moment um, that it really escalated to kind of like physical contact. It was in his car. And I had actually opened the door to put my legs out of the car. So I had kind of a a feeling, um, the feeling that I'm sure everybody recognizes where you're like, something is deeply wrong. And you think like, I want to at least put myself in a position to like run away. Like, So there was a lot of um, me like... Um, fretting with a very limited number of puzzle pieces that I had. I couldn't make a complete picture of how this would impact my future prospects. Um, And so I was talking a lot to my friends about it, other women who are like 20 years old, you know, like we were trying to figure out what would be the right way to behave, what would be the right way to approach it to make it stop. And yet maybe I still would have a chance of being an astronomer. And so it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of that. Um, And then it miraculously ceased. And I know now it's because he was separately confronted about harassment of another undergraduate by a graduate student at the time. She actually was in the BuzzFeed article, too, the original one that broke the story. And um, so if not for her intervention, what might become of what might have become of me? So it certainly behooves me now to be that person that younger Sarah needed so badly. Perhaps I, in turn can prevent harassment of another younger woman um, by speaking up about it. That's my hope. That was my hope. I just want to let our listeners know that we asked Marcy's lawyer, Elizabeth Grossman, about the incident that took place in Marcy's car, in which Marcy allegedly attempted to massage Ballard's neck. Grossman didn't dispute Ballard's account, but she does question its significance. Quote, As she, that is Ballard, knows from her own experience with Dr. Marcy, following this one incident, she continued to interact with him on campus without any objectional repetition of misconduct. In fact, he continued to help her professionally writing a recommendation for admission to Harvard Graduate School and nominating her for an academic award at Berkeley, which she received. Additionally, in her professional life, she has sought Dr. Marcy out repeatedly, 
for professional advice and has co-authored eight papers with him, end quote. We should also point out that according to the Berkeley report, Marcy told the university's investigators that he didn't recall touching Ballard's neck in the car, but it was possible he did. Now back to the interview. So, I mean, it's an oversimplification. This is a confusing period, to say the least. Yeah, of course it was, yeah. I mean, it. So, um, I had uh, only um, in fits and starts uh, hope that I could become an astronomer at all. And so to be identified by such a famous, successful individual as someone who is full of promise, that beckoned not only because it was about interacting with him, it was because this future idea of Sarah was suddenly possible. And if I really was talented, I remember him saying, it's not only that you like physics, he said, you're good at it. You're good at it. I never would have said that about myself at that time, even though I never got a B. I never got a B. So then, so why would I have said I wasn't very good at it? It's because I didn't yet know how to rally that confidence within myself or how to make sense of it. Um, so to have a person say, you are talented, you are full of promise, that is so compelling. And then to have all of a sudden the knowledge that that might not have been delivered in good faith, that message might not have been delivered in good faith, you feel like the rug's been pulled out under you. So does that mean that I'm not promising? Does that mean that all of it was a lie? Um, and so confusion, you know, barely is the tip of the iceberg. It was like profoundly rattling to my nascent sense of self as an astronomer as a scientist but you persevered you followed that trajectory into astronomy mm-hmm. and you followed a direct <laughs> a, <laughs> you followed it into exoplanets i mean it, like I'm, i did i did it was that uh was that intentional were you did you just fall in love with the idea of exoplanets i didn't was, even like exoplanets like i remember uh, at that time, thinking that it was kind of not that cool of a topic, or it was kind of like overdone, I guess. <laughs> I guess, and I was into galaxies. My graduate advisor, he pitched a project to me about exoplanets. It was the first NASA mission I ever worked on, and he was the one who was like, "I got this project to pitch to you." Uh, I I was part of a small class at Harvard. There was only four of us, and that is how I got into exoplanets because Dave Charbonneau pitched it, and he is a great salesman. <laughs> But now you're in this even stranger situation, in a way, that you're studying exoplanets. Oh, I know. And the most famous exoplanet hunter in the world, Jeff Marcy, is the man that harassed you. Yeah, yeah. So how do you balance that? I mean, you must have had interactions professionally mm-hmm. now at, uh, at, in other settings. Yeah. What, what is that experience like? The first time that I realized I might have to interact with him professionally, it was when I was in... Uh, the office with my advisor and we thought maybe we had found an interesting planet of some kind um this was like one of my very first publications and he said you know and if it if it really progresses to that point maybe we'll ask jeff to see if he can measure it and i made a face like i looked stunned and uh confused deer in the headlights and he was like what was that why did you make that face and i i lied i said um Oh, uh, just the thought of working with someone as a peer who's been someone I really look up to, you know, that uh, was stunning to me. And so at that time, I didn't yet, I hadn't yet schooled my expressions to reflect, you know, to be a mask over. And even though uh, this is years have gone by now, it still has that, it hmm. still feels fresh to you. In some ways, yeah. In some ways it does. And other parts of it, I don't. I think of myself in that summer of 2005, I don't really see myself. I see like women I know today, like women I'm mentoring. I think of them more than I imagine young Sarah. It's kind of funny. Anyway, but uh, that's part of why um, it was so difficult, the emotional calculus of whether to participate in the Title IX investigation and then whether to use my real name is because he hasn't only harmed me. He has done me material harm, but he also helped me. He did write me letters for graduate school. They must have been great letters. I got in almost everywhere. I worked really hard, too. And I remember at least one time in a professional setting with a group of high-powered exoplanet people, he really stood up for me. And that was something which troubled me deeply for a long time because I thought, is he trying to apologize? Is he trying to make it right? And shouldn't a person forgive then if... If some wrong, you know, you're trying to write it. And then I thought, first of all, wrongdoing, you you can't simply erase it. 
with a positive gesture. That's not something that's true. And also, there was no indication that he was no longer harassing people. Um, but I remember that was something deeply confusing because we did overlap in exoplanets. I hated to be near him, but we did, and he did help me too. And I had heard from a number of other um, astronomers that there were rumors about him. Yeah. And th did those rumors reach you that he was can he was harassing other people? They hadn't. Uh, so they just had at that point. Um, so this was 2011, like summer of 2011. So in January of 2011 was the first time that I realized he had a reputation of any kind. And that was at a conference. A woman who was a graduate student at Berkeley was having a conversation with me at the coffee um, table, you know, at a conference. Um, and she said something about a history of harassment at Berkeley. And then for whatever reason, I said something. I was like, oh, that happened to me. And she was like, was it Jeff? <laughs> Probably was. And he's not the only one either. You know, she came out in her own piece in Slate recently, Katie. And uh, at that point, I realized, oh, my God, it wasn't just me. How did the word of the Title IX investigation reach you? It was actually through um, Joan Schmelz. So she was the former head of the Committee on the Status of Women in Astronomy. It was uh, she that uh, this young woman directed me to. She said, if you're interested in talking more about what happened to you or documenting it in some fashion, this individual who was profiled by nature, I think, like uh, six months ago or so, um, as being an advocate um, in our field, she said, you might uh, touch base with her. And I did. I recounted everything that had happened to me um, in uh, 2011, everything that had happened to me in 2005. That was the first time I committed it to paper. And um, it was she who said, we're trying to rally a critical mass of people to actually make this investigation happen. And it wasn't only women outside the department. It was people in the department, too, who all of a sudden were aware, maybe in a way they hadn't before, or maybe they were aware in a new way. And... So that was 2014. Um, by the time, so like years passed between when I decided to write down everything that had happened to me and share it for the first time. And I learned for the first time the serial nature of the harassment. And when the investigation was uh, in place to the extent that I could share my testimony over the phone with the Title IX officer at UC Berkeley, years went by. We should point out here that Marcy's lawyer, Elizabeth Grossman, strongly disputes Ballard's characterization of Marcy's behavior as serial harassment. In an interview, Grossman said, quote, the Berkeley investigation was a result in part of concerned outsiders scouring the country to interview members of the astronomy community for any evidence of sexual harassment on Dr. Marcy's part. The Berkeley allegations represent the sum of what was uncovered, and I do not believe that that equals what Ballard suggested, end quote. Grossman added, quote, there is not a single allegation of sexual assault. There's not a single allegation of soliciting sex or of requesting sex in exchange for academic favor. There's not a single suggestion of his interfering with anyone's ability to thrive on campus, end quote. Now back to the interview. What was that experience like? Yeah. I, of sharing your experience with an, an investigator? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we. I probably have this notion of what TV tells me, <laughs> that it's like, oh, I'm finally getting justice. And that's probably <laughs> farthest from the truth. Oh, um, well, uh, I had modest hopes. And I think how m the measured nature of my hopes was really borne out in the fact that Berkeley meted out uh, the tiniest uh, punishment after the fact, like basically don't do it again or you might face repercussions. So that was the outcome of the investigation um, until uh, it became public knowledge. But at that time, I remember thinking it was possible that justice could be done. But so many elements of this investigation, people have asked, wasn't it hard because it felt like it was playing out on such a big stage? You know, there's so many astronomers and so many people know of this man. And how did you? But in truth, I was most afraid of him. It always felt like he could make me feel so small how if he wanted. How so? He could say, um, he could make me feel really guilty. I tried to help you. And I tried to do right. Why would you do this? Like, you, you could imagine. I mean, and I'm sure that is in the mind of many a serial harasser, is that you can manipulate whether a person reports you by creating 
the type of relationship in which it's always ambiguous and they're just trying to do the right thing and so on. So that was clear to me and yet I still felt very afraid. And in fact, I had gone to, I was a postdoc at the University of Washington at this point. I had gone to the ombudsperson at the University of Washington, um, not because I had an issue at that university, but to say, if I decide to participate in an investigation at a major public university, what can I expect? And I remember she disabused me of the idea that I could ever really stay anonymous to him. That was what I was most afraid of. Um, and she said, he was probably going to find out. You should reconcile yourself to that in your decision-making process. That's chilling. Mm -hmm. what, is that what it was like for you? That was what was the hardest part, yeah, was reconciling myself to the fact that he'll know it was me. And um, I... Uh, struggled with that and found that there was one principle which helped me to unravel the tangled knot of my feelings that I could always return to and it would remind me of why I was making the choices I was and that was you have to be the woman you needed then. You couldn't protect yourself then but you can protect younger you today and you can protect women who are 20 today. You can protect women who are 12. You know, if eight years go by and they're taking his class, you can prevent that from happening to them, what happened to you. And that would make a lot of the scales fall from my eyes um, about what was the right thing to do and what was the wrong thing to do and how afraid I felt and so on. And and every person, of course, has his or her own emotional calculus when it comes um to being out and participating, and I would never judge another person for, for not doing that. Um, but it certainly was what rallied me was that it wasn't really about me anymore, you know. Um, and moreover, I had so much at that point. Like I had ten years in exoplanets, you know, ten years of my blood, sweat, and tears to associate the name Sarah Ballard with exoplanets, and so I could afford it by God. Like n no one would associate my name with sexual harassment in my field because I had put in so much hard work to associate it with exoplanets. So for that reason, I thought too, I can spare it. That is a powerful principle. And I can see how that gave you the courage and, and, and strength just to have the investigation. Yeah. Uh, but it's another thing when the press come calling, mm -hmm. because that must've been another shift when BuzzFeed mm -hmm. came calling and asked you to talk to them yes because there's a couple choices you have here you could obviously say no uh, but you didn't and you could have remained anonymous and you didn't can you talk to us about those choices yes there's two reasons why i used my real name in that buzzfeed piece um the first one was because i had educated myself on the huge sea change that's happened in people's opinions about uh, LGBT individuals in our community. And that has happened for a number of reasons in the political landscape. But a major one is that so many people are out. It really changes people's minds about who is deserving of humanity when you know someone personally. It's not just a faceless person. And so I thought this might make a difference. People will say, at least in my field, I know Sarah. She's a careful person. She's a good scientist. Um, she seems to me like a solid individual, and uh, that might sway people's opinion in my field, and it might sway people's opinion more broadly. And so if that could be used as a fulcrum, it ought to be used. And the other thing was to show other women that they needn't be afraid because I wasn't afraid. And a good way to show that I wasn't afraid was to use my real name. Did you consult with other people, close friends and relatives? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I did. And, and uh, What did they say? Um... Many left it to me, you know, um, it's not something I can decide for you and, and so on. Um, but the opinion of two people was crucial to me and that I knew I had support in my field by senior individuals. So not only my PhD advisor, but also John Johnson, a former student of Jeff's, um, he was going to become public. And I thought, well, Jeff helped him too. He helped him too, and he's still making a stand that it wasn't okay. And just to make it clear to our listeners here, John Johnson is a former Berkeley graduate student who told BuzzFeed he had witnessed inappropriate behavior by Marcy. According to BuzzFeed, Marcy's lawyer denied Johnson's allegations. Now back to our interview. That made me feel stronger too. Like that what happened to me 
would still merit my standing up and speaking about it, even if I had a complex set of feelings about it. That made me feel good. And these two individuals, both Charbonneau and Johnson, are senior men in my field of exoplanets. And they said, we've got your back. Whatever happens, we will protect you. And that made me feel braver too. Those years of being in the field had earned me relationships with people who felt I was worth protecting. And for that reason too, I thought, I just have to spend down these privileges for the sake of someone who doesn't have them yet. That article was quite the spark. It Oof, lit a, wasn't it? It lit a fire. Um, soon thereafter, Jeff retired from UC Berkeley, and it seemed to open a spigot of many, many, many more cases becoming public. As this is all unfolding, your name is out there. What is it like for you in this time when all of this comes to light? You would think that for someone who's maybe thought more about harassment than the average person, and you would think that for someone who indeed has some academic training in social justice even, that it wouldn't be quite a surprise to me at the magnitude um, of harassment. And every time it strikes me again, the same banal cruelty and the same um, callous ineptitude <laughs> by individuals in the university uh, leadership who make the same decisions to look the other way uh, and, and protect their colleagues rather than the vulnerable students. Um, you would think that I, that would sink in for me and it would all be kind of like, oh, this is what I expected. And yet it scares me, the magnitude of it. It was like this particular case was the hammer that pried up the floorboard and it's just so rotten underneath. It's more rotten than I even imagined it would be. There's so many people. There's a number of pieces that came coming out, not only out of Berkeley, there have been enough, but out of other places. And it's always the same stupid story, you know. It's amazing to me um, that it's not just the harassers you are surprised. It's the people that turn the other way. And in some ways, I mean, maybe this is my impression. It seems like you're almost more frustrated and angry with them than you are with the harassers. I, I don't know if that's the right sentiment. Yeah, that reflects my anger uh, in expressing that sentiment, reflects what I feel is uh, an enabling culture at large. Um, because you can't have a person harass people with impunity unless they've um unless they've been implicitly supported by people looking away or when they have been reprimanded it hasn't been too harshly and i think that it i i feel anger but i also understand because to acknowledge the nature of harassment the serial nature of it and the ubiquity of it is to question the entire meritocracy of the scientific process and that is a huge undertaking for a person to do. Congresswoman Spear talked about rooting out the cancer. Yeah, yeah. And um, eliminating these harassers from the environment and using a variety of mechanisms to do so. Uh, but it led me to one fundamental question. We often talk to this issue as a workplace issue. But that relationship between student and advisor, student and professor, is not a typical workplace. Yeah. And I, I was wondering if you can take us into what it feels like to be a student in that position where there's somebody advising you because that relationship isn't purely professional always. Yeah, right. Um, so I think uh, every person's experience is different. Uh, it's interesting to note um, that I have used my real name and, and so on, but um, I am not the typical face of harassment, actually. Um, rather, proportionally speaking, that's a woman of color, and my whiteness has protected me, too, uh, I think, in this particular set of circumstances. So my experience is that of a young white woman, for one thing. Um, and the experience of being a student is one of uh, cautious optimism, I think, especially for a young scientist, because you know that it is possible for some people to have a job where your job is to explore the universe. So if that's the case, that is so compelling. And so you dare to hope. And 
in the capacity of both an undergraduate and a graduate student, you're in the process of trying to craft a scientific identity. You know, you're trying to establish a body of work. You're trying to actually publish new ideas for the first time. And yet you need the guidance and endorsement of senior people in order to make it anywhere in the field. So you rely upon these people not only to provide you with direction for your work, um, but also to share your name at conferences and to write you letters of recommendation, which are how so many decisions get made about who gets to go where and who gets access to which resources. So it's a um, position of relative powerlessness. What does need to shift, in your opinion, to uh, change the culture going forward of how research is conducted that allows for these harassers to continue their activities? Yeah. So my first thought is that as institutions for research in the U.S., universities do have an opportunity to lead the way there. So how ought they to do that. Um, I think Congresswoman Spear has a great solution, which is to financially penalize universities for protecting harassers. Um, and I think that's worthwhile legislation. Um, another thing is I think the barrier to testifying or sharing a story of harassment or uh, an experience of harassment needs to be uh, substantially lower. And I think that's possible with um, technological developments like e.g. Callisto, you know, where you file anonymously and there's an escrow on those reports. And then if an individual's name is coming up many times, then there's a mandate to explore that in more detail. Um, I think that's really worthwhile. And then I think ultimately it'll be a question of who is in power. Because if you look at who has been reporting on a lot of these sexual harassment cases, it's been a lot of women and women of color too. And that's reflective of who has access to interesting stories, who has the right to tell the stories that they want to tell. And I think it'll help too when you have people in positions of leadership uh, in universities within departments who don't subscribe to the same ideas about what success looks like. Um, I think that's another piece too. And then, I mean, when it comes to the culture broadly, um, I wish there was a way to just prescribe empathy. So it not only to treat this one symptom, but to treat the whole malady, you know, it's because it's not only harassment, it's bullying, often, you know, racist bullying. And it's the fact that there's maybe only one disabled astronomer in the entire United States. Like it very clearly is a culture that values people who look a particular way. And there's something that can't be fixed with only like Title IX legislation on that front. Where do you fit in all of this? I mean, Mm -hmm. You want to do your science. Like, it's clear you love exoplanets. Yeah. You love the work. <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, I do. And by coming out and putting your name to this, you've attached yourself to a bigger issue across science, not just astronomy. It, do you have a, a, a plan on, on where Sarah Ballard fits into this larger conversation? There's, um, there's definitely a compass that I have. Uh, my heart points north. I definitely know what the right thing is to do, and I know what good choices are for me. So it gets rattled sometimes, and there's a lot of magnetic interference. But just like with this particular set of circumstances, in the end, I knew what the right decision was. And I know what good decisions are for me professionally, too. You know, a major one has been that I haven't uh, leapt at every opportunity to become a faculty member which I have been lucky enough to have that opportunity already. And yet I know that there are, it's more than scientific excellence that I need to feel that my life is meaningful and worthwhile. I have to feel too that I'm within a community of people who share my values in some way or who really know me. And that means ultimately what I want is not only 
a faculty job, which I do really want the chance to advise students, um, graduate students, and the, the, shape the future of our field. I also would like to be in a department in which that would be valued. <laughs> that sounds modest. Um, but this is what I hope for. That's what I hope for. And, you know, maybe Sarah in 10 years um, will look back and say that I made good decisions. I'm really hoping that that's the case. I think it's going to be the case. And lastly, that principle that you had, that powerful principle of wanting to be the woman that that younger self of your needed. Yeah. What's your message to so many other women and, and just people generally that are going through similar circumstances on how to proceed? So I can think of a message broadly for young people and especially young women who are interested in science or maybe even at the beginning stages of science, which is that the things that make you intrinsically yourself are not liabilities. Those are things that actually make you a better scientist. And in fact, reflecting on those things, I'm not just speaking off the cuff. I'm talking about the practice of values affirmation, which has been borne out in peer-reviewed studies to be useful to people in situations where there's identity threat of any kind. If you reflect on the things that matter to you, like your sense of humor, your relationships with your family members, your creativity, that creates a buffer in a situation that's full of negative messages that you can never turn the volume all the way down. But you can protect yourself in some measure by remembering that the things that make you yourself are really worthwhile. And a lot of those things for a long time I thought were a liability. Like the fact that I really, it didn't matter how many planets I found on a given day or, or whatnot, if I didn't talk to another person, it wasn't a good day. And I remember thinking this is a liability because my colleagues can just work for so long and with such dedication and though just clearly they're suited to be better scientists. But the truth is that my set of skills, both um, empathic and scientific, all of those things create more interesting science. And so that would be my message to young women is to not think about how you have to fit the mold of whatever the scientist is that you see. The things that you already are equip you to be scientific. That's an incredible message to leave on. Sarah Ballard, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Congresswoman Spear, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Give us a little background on how you became interested in this overall topic of sexual harassment before we get to how sexual harassment in science has come up. So my work on sexual harassment actually dates way, way back to when I was in the state legislature. And I remember interviewing young staff members when I just got elected. So this is 1986. I'm 36 years old. And I'm interviewing young staff members who are telling me harrowing stories of sexual harassment in the state capitol. So I became very interested in the issue, wanted to clean up the Legislatures Act, and carried legislation that required in California that all employers provide specific information and a pamphlet on what sexual harassment is and what steps you can take to address it. I also went to then Speaker Willie Brown and said, we need sexual harassment training for all members of the state legislature and make it mandatory, which occurred. So moving forward, how did that translate to your work with the military, which has become a key focus of, of your agenda over the past few years? So as I um, came to Congress, I became aware that Tailhook, which was 25 years ago, was never – there was never – an effort made to really address it. And it was one of the very first hearings I went to, and it was an oversight hearing. And I was shocked at the responses by members of the military who were explaining um, how they've addressed the issue of uh, sexual assault in the military. And they were still like in the 60s talking about the effects of alcohol and um, the attire that women wear in the military off-duty that creates an environment where they will be sexually assaulted. And I thought to myself, we have a problem. We have a big problem. And then I started hearing the stories from 
service members who have been sexually assaulted, who then reported it and then were ostracized and over a short period of time were identified as having a personality disorder and discharged from the military. And so the, the issue started to bubble up in so many ways. And then when we started having climate surveys and found out that there were 20,000 men and women who were sexually assaulted a year in the military, mostly men, because of course the military is mostly men, and found out that of those 20,000, less than 5,000 would actually file a complaint. That's unacceptably low. Why is that? Because they realized what happened to those that did. And if your career military, and virtually everyone is now because it's voluntary, then you could see that your career would just go down the tube. So you had 5,000 who would report. Of those, only 500 went to court-martial, and only 250 resulted in convictions. So then we dug deeper and found out that part of the problem is, is that the chain of command is there to protect themselves. And in part, sometimes they were, in fact, the predators. Sometimes they were the best friends of the predators. But more than anything else, it's all about the promotion. And they didn't want to have a black mark on their record that was rapes or sexual harassment or sexual assaults going on under their command. So they would find reasons to just sweep them under the rug. So from the military to science, not exactly a linear line. I don't at least I don't think so. But somehow you you became aware of cer- certain transgressions that were happening in our community. So what happened was the military came to me and says, well, you know, our problem isn't any uh, worse than what it is on college campuses. So I thought, okay, then we've got a problem there too. And then I started addressing the rapes and sexual assaults going on in college campuses and introduced legislation there. And be- then beyond that, I became aware of the sexual harassment that was going on in academia, particularly um, at the graduate student level, where you are, much like you are in the military, totally beholden to a advisor or to your commander, where you have a uh, separate code of behavior, military code of justice, and then the code of conduct in a college campus, and a perverse reason not to address it, because grant dollars come into the university, 50% of the grant dollars go to the administration, 50% go to the grantee. So you can see how you know, money 50% talks. on average. At elite institutions, it's even more than that. That's correct. So I became aware of your championing this issue when I saw a video on C-SPAN of you reading the story of what Tim Slater had done. Do you care to relate that story? Absolutely. I was given a copy of the actual Title IX um, investigation that was done about sexual harassment by Timothy Slater. Now, University of Arizona did an investigation, found that he was guilty of that conduct, sealed that report, and then had him, as his punishment, have sensitivity training. Now, subsequently, he left University of Arizona, went to University of Wyoming, where he holds a chair there. When I read this report, I was sickened. I was physically sickened. And I said to myself, this deserves to be um, in the light of day. We have got to make this public. Now, under the speech and debate clause in the House of Representatives, I can go on the House floor And that's what I did. I went on the House floor. I described his conduct, which included requiring his teaching assistants to come to office hours at a strip club, telling one of his TAs that they would teach a whole lot better if they taught without underwear, and giving another student a vibrator. Now, that is despicable behavior. And you can see how many of his teaching assistants and graduate students actually left the profession. So here they are leaving the sciences when we want to see more women in science, but leaving it because they couldn't handle the hostile work environment in which they were placed. 
I just want to let our listeners know here that we reached out to Timothy Slater. He declined to answer specific questions we sent him, but he did provide us with a letter his lawyer sent to the University of Arizona threatening to sue the university for defamation and breach of privacy over the release of the school's investigative report concerning the sexual harassment allegations against him. In the letter, Slater's attorneys say that the report, quote, contains numerous false and misleading allegations which Representative Speer and the media has reported as fact, end quote. Specifically, the attorney state that Slater never gave a vibrator to any graduate student ever, that Slater never encouraged a subordinate to not wear underwear, and that Slater denies that he ever pressured anyone to go to a strip club or that anyone ever complained about going to a strip club. Now back to our interview. And you've been using language like predator for a long time. You use very strong language about this to indicate that there is an incredible transgression here. Uh, what has the response been from the academic community and the university community? Because you've been very aggressive on the topic. There's a lot of soul searching, I think, going on now. It, it, you know, their behavior is is indefensible in terms of how unwilling they were to follow the law and compel these individuals who conducted themselves in such a terribly violative way um, to allow them to continue. And so, you know, they're culpable as well because these are sexual predators. It wasn't just one person that was impacted. It was many, many. Once I told that story on the House floor about Timothy Slater, I was inundated by phone calls into my office. Sadly, there are so many scientists of my own generation at my own institution that will talk about stories of that they couldn't, when they were on trips, they couldn't go hang out with that one professor. They all knew who that was, that you didn't go be alone with him. Uh, so I know it's incredibly common. Do we have any data on how common it is? I don't know that we have any data, but we have enough anecdotal evidence to make the case that one, the universities aren't doing their jobs, that they are they're gross violations of Title IX, that we have an obligation to enforce the law and demand that these institutions of higher learning, you know, do their job. What kind of legislation can you introduce that's going to have teeth for these universities? Because many of them are private institutions, some of them are public. But we don't have full control over what is happening behind the scenes, certainly from a federal level. Well, actually, we have a fair amount of control through Title IX because so many of these institutions, private and public, rely on federal dollars, either through grant dollars or their students have federally subsidized loans. And the big stick that Title IX provides that is basically if you violate Title IX and don't provide equal educational opportunities for all, that you can lose your federal funding. So imagine losing the loan dollars or the grant dollars that come to your institution. Now, what we saw with people like Jeff Marcy at UC Berkeley, renowned astronomer, 10 years of conduct that was gross and violative of the law, and yet he continued in that position a very renowned astronomer bringing lots of grant dollars to the institution, and they found a way to just look another direction. What do you think the prospect of passing legislation that's going to put some teeth into this by restricting um, uh, dollars to these institutions? What do you think the likelihood of it passing? Because let's be honest, the, the current Congress hasn't gotten a, a ton of legislation passed. So it's not going to happen in this Congress. But that doesn't mean you can't start changing behavior in institutions. And we've already seen it at the University of California. Uh, President Napolitano is, I've had many conversations with her on this issue. She is very committed to addressing this issue. And I think as more and more institutions come under the media spotlight, frankly, that we're going to see more and more uh, universities do the right thing. Meanwhile, I am introducing legislation that basically is going to require that every university that has a Title IX complaint that's filed, that's investigated, and a report is completed, that that has got to be shared with all of the granting institutions 
in the federal government. So the National Science Foundation, NASA, National Institute of Health. Now, in the end, it's all about money. And if you follow the money, you can, I think, address this issue properly. For the victims, many of whom are, whose stories are just seeing the light of day now, what, what message do we have for them? They've been heard. You know, so many of them who have called me have, have just been grateful for the fact that there is, there's recognition that their fates are impacted by this gross behavior and that someone now is, is taking it seriously, whether it's the institution or members of Congress, that it's confirming or affirming that they weren't going crazy, that what they believed was wrong was indeed wrong and needs to be fixed. Given the sheer number of stories that have been reported in the press from BuzzFeed and numerous other outlets, it's easy to be cynical about this, that we're making progress. Are we making progress, particularly in the sciences on this topic? Well, I recently met with the uh, American Academy of Sciences, and they actually had a conference. American, it's the AAAS. And they actually had a conference on what they saw as uh, bias that may not be obviously detected or that is so obvious, indirect bias, I guess would be the term. So as more and more entities, whether they're trade associations or universities, start to look in the mirror, I think we're going to see changes take place. Well, I deeply appreciate the time and joining us on Inquiring Minds, and best of luck as you root out sexual harassment in science. Well, we're not going to stop until we've done a good job of sanitizing the sciences as it relates to sexual harassment. So these are two really powerful conversations, and it's hard to know how to react. I feel like everything that I would want to say has been said. Yeah, I, it was different kind of experience for me for two reasons. One, uh, it was really eye-opening to be a man who's been treated well by science, even though I'm not white. And uh, But I've my dad was a scientist. Like I've been afforded a lot of positive treatment in the scientific world. It was eye-opening to me to see the vulnerability of that student-professor relationship shine from the perspective of a woman in a really personal way. And then it was uplifting to hear Jackie Spear talk about this like it was solvable. Like it, when she said, basically, when she contrasted the fact that she's been working in issues of sexual assault in the military, and she's like, science? Essentially was like, no problem. These people are cupcakes compared to what I've dealt with in other realms. And when she talked about you know, essentially eradicating this as a cancer. Um, I found uh, myself just being really uplifted uh, by a politician for the first time in a long time, when uh, for so long, a lot of the conversation has been swirling for me, like this is just a, a crisis or an epidemic. And Jackie Spear made it seem like, yeah, we can fix this. And we're going to. Yeah, I guess I just still a little skeptical that that policy changes will trickle down. Uh, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is a, there's a lot of nuance here. There are people who genuinely fall in love. And it's often, I think, difficult for a person in power to recognize whether someone is just being nice and, you know, wants to be thought well of by that person, or if they are showing signs of a different type of affection. And, you know, uh, you know, barring just saying there's absolutely no relationships that can happen between uh, grad students or undergrad students and their professors, which, you know, some schools implement, and yet it happens all the time. This is the first time we've seen purse strings attached to this topic. And I believe, especially working at a university, that money has a lot of sway. And if this actually passes, and Jackie Spear was very forthright saying she doesn't think this will pass, but the threat of it uh, potentially encouraging uh, universities to make greater inroads about this was a positive development for me. Uh, and we're at this great inflection point, thanks to BuzzFeed, which is a weird statement in and of itself. 
uh, where we're again revisiting this issue in a way that I hope can make change. And I know that was a flippant remark around BuzzFeed, but I don't think we're having this conversation without the press outlets doing all this work. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. Thanks so much. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.